Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks available on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me for our first show of 2015, and it's going to be a good one. My, again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour here on Talent Talk. We have a, a great lineup uh, set for you today. Uh, we have one very special guest as opposed to our normal uh, two-guest format. So I hope that uh, you're really looking forward to hearing some great insights. The Talent Talk radio show features a wide range of guests who care about talent management, leadership development, and company culture. So in the business world, talent really has a couple different meanings. And the first is really to show how it relates to success and how really talented people achieve that great success. And the second is how talent relates to human resources and how HR leaders can find the best candidates for their companies. So this show explores those two different areas along with how talented individuals impact a company's culture. The guests that are typically appear here uh, are CEOs, HR executives, entrepreneurs, coaches, uh, consultants, and uh, quite a few authors. So from all different types of uh, industries and uh, really different leadership areas. Typically what happens is I'm at a networking event or a conference, and I have the, the great privilege of meeting some of these inspiring leaders. And I created this forum to allow you to listen on our dialogue and hopefully get some practical advice uh, about how to cultivate talent, develop leaders, manage culture, and most importantly, impact your own career in a positive way. I want to thank those of you tuning in live here every Tuesday. If you have a question for our guests, you can submit them via Twitter by tweeting to your questions to at PeopleG2, and please use that hashtag Talent Talk. My producer, Mike, can feed me the best questions, and we'll work them into the show as time allows. You can also send us other suggestions, guest suggestions, whatever you like there. Don't forget about the Talent Talk podcast on iTunes uh, and Android. Make sure you subscribe to that feed. We have well over 113,000 of you are subscribed and listening each week uh, to the podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Uh, so that got all the business here out of the way. Let's get today's show started. Uh, my guest today is David Marquet. He's the author of the book, Turn the Ship Around, uh, and someone who many of the guests on this show previously have mentioned uh, as a book either they suggested people read or they were currently reading. So it's a real great pleasure to have him here to talk about it. He'll be, again, our one and only guest here today on the show. So, David, welcome. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be connected with everyone back in OC once again. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and you're, uh, are you currently in New York? You know, I'm down in Tampa now. Okay. I, I moved about four months ago from Manhattan down here to Tampa. About right about the right time of year to have done that. <laughs> yeah, I screwed up last year. My wife wanted to make sure I didn't make the same mistake twice. <laughs> I'm sure you probably enjoy a little bit of that humid weather too. Being a, it sounds like the many years you were in Hawaii. So yeah, I don't mind the hot weather. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't mind it hot, but I like it dry in Arizona. Not 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 so humid. If I'm in Hawaii, I can live with it as long as there's a pina colada. I think in my hand, but. You live with anything in Hawaii. That's right. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to, to maybe start with, you. maybe you could give our listeners, if maybe someone who doesn't know you or doesn't know you that well, maybe just a little bit of an intro here on who you are and kind of what led you up to, you know, writing the, the book that you did to turn the ship around. Yeah, sure. So I was a naval officer. I was a submarine commander 
and I was a had a fairly fairly traditional career. Went to the Naval Academy, moved moved up the ranks in the Navy, doing all the right things, and was assigned to take command of the USS Olympia, a wonderful warship, highly capable, good crew out in Hawaii. What happened was. I never went there because there was another ship in Hawaii, the USS Santa Fe. And the Santa Fe was the worst performing submarine in the fleet. She had morale problems. Only three sailors re-enlisted the previous 12 months. So after a year of studying to be the captain of the Olympia, the uh, CEO of the Santa Fe unexpectedly quit early, and the Navy shifted me over to the Santa Fe. Now, the catch was, in addition to all those problems, the Santa Fe was one of the newest ships in the fleet and was a different kind of submarine than the Olympia. And this really threw me for a loop because in the past, I'd always been the smartest guy and I always knew all the equipment and I could point to any button and know what it did. And then with sort of this flick of the switch, all of a sudden, I'm the captain of a submarine, poor morale, poor performance, and... The equipment, sort of like Alice in Wonderland time for me. Now, were you excited, though, with that challenge initially? You know, I, I was <laughs> – no. <laughs> well, in a way, I was, but I was really scared, Chris. Yeah. And I really didn't know what to do and how, how we were going to get around it. I spent a lot of time thinking about how I was going to be a captain on the Olympian. It was fairly traditional stuff. Anyway, I got down to Santa Fe. And something sort of clicked in my brain, and, and not knowing the answers caused me to really ask questions in a different way. And I, I'd always thought I was questioning, but now I was really more curious. And what happened was, very early on, I gave an order. You know, why was I giving orders? Because that's what captains do. It wasn't arrogance, it wasn't hubris. It's just that's what you do, right? Right. And my crew was following orders, and I gave an order that couldn't be performed on this particular ship, unknown to me. My crew actually tried to follow it until one of these young guys said, hey, you know, this, this makes no sense. You can't do this on the submarine. It was, it was basically say, like saying shift into sixth gear but only having five gears in a car. So it wasn't a big deal, but it really rocked me back on my heels when I realized that the crew tried to do it. And that's when I realized that basically everything I knew about leadership was wrong. Everything I knew about leadership was well, maybe not wrong, but it was just irrelevant because it was about getting people to do things, getting people to be compliant, getting people, you know, controlling people. And what I needed was people to think. And so we had to go from getting people to do to getting people to think. And the language of, of, of work and the language of business and the language of leadership has predominantly been about doing, right? Hey, we want people to do their jobs, right? No, we want people to think mm-hmm. their jobs. You know, look, one, of the, yeah, one of the things that I... I had for, for a long time, people had been kind of talking about this book and mentioning your book. And and I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you why a little later, why I, I initially did not jump to read it. But one of the things that, uh, and I, re- I regret not doing it sooner, but I had my own preconceived ideas that were wrong, I, which you've shared kind of having that epiphany as well. But one of the things that I was shocked at was I thought I'd be reading a book about how to better tell people what to do because in the military that's kind of the you know from the layman's terms or you know the outsider's view who has never been in the military everyone has their role they all follow the you know the rules and 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 orders and that's a part of the efficiency in the system that people are doing what they're supposed to do and the people up top are supposed to know all the right answers from the beginning and 
Um, Correct. You, you know, so you kind of had this impression that, that I'm just going to learn how to tell people what to do better. Uh, which, when I started reading it, I was just wonderfully surprised that this was not going the way I thought it might, and there was so much more uh, relevance and, and practical information to an everyday business. Was was that hard to do? I mean, or was did it just kind of come across naturally because now you were thrown in this whole new situation and this whole new way of having to think and do, and you had the opportunity to maybe do it right? Was it hard? In a way, it was very hard. In a way, it was very obvious. I was—I just remember standing there. I'm in the control room of the submarine. We're in the middle of Pacific Ocean, hundreds of feet under the water, uh, and and just having this realization that we can't do what we're doing. The problem with the crew, people said, "Oh, it's a lack of leadership." That wasn't the problem. The problem was it was too much leadership. It was all the traditional leadership. It was telling people what to do. Therefore, people stood around waiting to be told what to do, and everyone was focused on avoiding mistakes. Well, the best way to avoid mistakes is not do anything. So it sort of biased the whole organization into inactivity, in, in, into passivity. And, we, and so we had to th- upend all of that. But we were at sea on a nuclear submarine, and so all I did was I said, look, Stop asking permission. Just use these words. Say, quote, I intend to. Mm-hmm. And if, if I had said, thou shalt be empowered, I need you guys to be empowered or be proactive, I don't think it would have worked because people don't know what that means. And, oh, by the way, they already think they're empowered. So, like, what do you want me to do different? So we ended up sort of stumbling on this thing where we all we did was focus on the nitty-gritty of the words that we said. And we just sort of changed the words in, in subtle but really profound ways, which rippled uh, down through the crew and had an impact which lasted for a, uh, over a decade. You know, one of the other reasons that I was initially hesitant was I have read several business books that start off with or at some point get to a military example mm. as their reasoning for whatever that you know their idea is or their belief system that they're trying to get you to to adapt to and in those situations it always works but i i have always found a slight disconnect in the sense that you're in a highly highly focused and uh, maybe dangerous situations where these are things are playing out um, and that has its own set of variables and and in a military standpoint, and I want to get your kind of thoughts on this, I think there's this huge sense of purpose. People are generally there, or at least they signed up there for for, for a different reason. In, in, a, in a private business, I think there's a lack of purpose. Maybe that'd be my better way to put it. Yeah. Uh, really good companies can, can do that, can help their employees understand what their purpose is and get them to really stand behind it. But I don't think the military has to work that hard. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm happy to hear that. But... At, at develop, defining what their purpose is. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear from where I'm standing what the purpose is. So you can focus then on the other areas that are important. So I was, I was surprised and, and happy to see how much real-life stuff you actually talked about that wasn't, you know, you weren't in the middle of a, of, of a fight. You know, you, you, weren't, you weren't, you know, 
casting um, you know bullets across the sea between you and another ship, and that was yeah. you're defining you know why why your philosophy here works. You were talking about real life stuff, even stuff when you were in port that you know was now very very kind of pulled away. So, how do you think that plays out that sense of purpose when you didn't transfer it into a private company setting? Yeah, so the best book on that is Simon Sinek's Start With Why, mm-hmm. where he talks about purpose in companies. Uh, so so a bunch of things there, Chris. Let me sort of tick them off. Number one, purpose is a, is a tricky thing because all the, all the U.S. military has the, quote, purpose of supporting and defending the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, unquote. But that doesn't really help you. Like, you're fixing a pump today. Mm-hmm. You're studying for a test. You're planning an operation. How does that, quote, purpose help you? It It's kind of distant and abstract. So we spent a lot of time boiling that purpose down into uh, what I use the word cl- organizational clarity. What are we trying to do, like, today? What's the best thing we can do with our submarine today in order to be ready tomorrow in case the nation calls upon us? And really boiling it down to the decisions you make today. For example, if we're going to drive the submarine into port, we have to pick an officer to drive it. And if all I care about is is the best driving today, and that's all I ever care about, I always just pick my best guy. But eventually he leaves, and I now have nobody, and I'm not training everybody else, and I'm not sending other trained submarine drivers out to the Navy. So... I'm more interested in a longer-term thing than than I train everybody and I rotate around. And I think the sense of are we in it for the long run or are we in it for the short run is if you just want to boil down your purpose to a single question, ask your people what's the time frame over which we plan to win. Mm-hmm. And you'll get different answers at different levels in the organization, and that's a really good conversation to have, but I want to dispel a couple other things. The most important thing that happens in the military, along with most businesses, all businesses, I would say, is thinking. And people say, oh, it's easy to be a leader in the military. You just give orders. Yeah, but the problem is you can never order somebody to think. You can't order them to think, or you can't order them what to think, and you can't order people to be creative or innovative. So all that has to happen with giving control, releasing control. And this is this is sort of the epiphany that I had, which was we don't if you if you want people to do, then take control and they'll be compliant. But if you want people to think, you gotta give control. And the whole question is how do you give control without having chaos? That's chaos is bad, it's bad on a nuclear submarine, it's bad in, in business. And I, I and I agree with you. That's um a really, really distinctive point, and a lot of people don't really focus on that. You know, we call it autonomy that, you know, giving people that, that room to do their jobs and to think and to come up with those solutions on their own, supported and, and you know, not, not thrown out there to figure out on their own without any help or tools, but at least given that opportunity to, to think on their own and to be creative and to come up with, with those different things. But I, I, one of the things I, I got this uh, kind of asked a few people that, had mentioned about your book and uh, had talked about on the radio show, kind of asked them if they had any specific questions. And there there were two kind of common themes that came up and I wanted to ask you about. And one was, do you think that, 
your process of transformation was aided or did it go quicker because you were, I mean, literally in a bubble? I mean, you were submerged underwater you know, in, a, in a floating bubble that, you know, from a culture standpoint, people kind of had to go along with maybe what the majority was, was now on board with. Do you think you got adoption quicker than maybe you would in, in a traditional setting? Yeah, I had some advantages that some of your your business guys don't have, and but I also had some disadvantages. Sure. One advantage I had was I had when we went to sea. I mean, you couldn't get away. You couldn't get further than a hundred feet from me, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and and we ate together, we slept together, we showered together, we watched movies together, and we worked together. So I had hundreds of opportunities every day. It's not like one of my guys would work for me, and then in the evening he would volunteer someplace else where there was a different leadership approach, mm-hmm. right? So I had a tre- ability to have tremendous consistency of message and tremendous opportunity to reinforce the behaviors that we wanted. Uh, on the other hand, I didn't get to, I couldn't, uh, unlike what you probably think, I couldn't hire anybody, I couldn't fire anybody. I had zero impact on who came to my submarine and who left. Mm. Uh, you know, if someone had done a felony, I could have gotten rid of them. But basically, short of that, you can't. It's very difficult to fire guys. So, I was able to, which is a great constraint because when you can't fire anybody and you can't hire anybody, you you spend all your energy just creating an environment where the people you have can be the best they can be. And I really worry. There's a lot of talk about. You know, I spent a lot of time on talent management. I got to get the right people on the bus and put them in the right seats. And I worry a lot about that because it kind of sends the message that if there is a problem, it's because of you, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You're in, you're not good enough. You're in the wrong seat. You're on the wrong bus. Blah blah blah. But what about the responsibility of the of the of the leader to make a bus that actually is functional, that actually works, that actually moving us in a direction that we want to go? You know, and so what I see is a lot of guys are, are driving broken buses and they're blaming the people sitting in the seats. Yeah. I have, I can't remember where I read this, but I have kind of repeated this, this statement or question to a few people in that similar setting that you're, you're describing and said, well, what, would, what would happen or how it would be different if you weren't allowed to fire anybody? You know, are there other, other changes in your organization you might make if you were stuck with the people you have forever? Yeah, right. I think that's a great question. I'm not saying never fire anybody, but mm-hmm. you, one one thing that happens is if you want people to think, uh, you know, and again, I think this is a fundamental shift that we're going through uh, in this, this century, which is going to play out for a long time. If you want people to think, you have they need to feel safe. And so we have all these, um, uh, I don't know what the word, tactics or habits of putting pressure on our team to get them to perform better, which is exactly the right thing to do if it's doing is what you want. You want people to, to, to pick cotton faster, sew a machine faster. Uh, right. Great. But if you want them to think better, then this is the exact opposite of what you want to do because science shows, and it's also intuitive, that when you're under pressure, when you're fear-based, you're not – you know, like, oh, where's your creativity? Hey, man, my creative, creative part of my brain turned off so I could run away from the lion. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so it, it happens very slowly, but in those organizations, people just start turning off a little bit more and a little bit more. Next thing you know, they're just they're following orders, and 
trying to do things that only they're being directly told to do so that something goes wrong, it's not their fault. Correct. Yeah, you know, somebody else's fault. So one of the other interesting questions that I got or suggested to ask you today was, were there any women on the submarine? Not on mine, but there are now. There are now. So yeah. do, you, do you think that the scenario of having a single gender to command in any way impacted it, good, bad, faster, slower, the, the, that, that change in culture that you did? Chris, I, I am sure there was an impact, but I cannot, I am not sure I, I, I know what it was. Right. Because I didn't really do A-B testing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it had to be an impact. But I've written a blog article that basically said, if you want to be a better leader, lead more with the characteristics associated with with women than with men. Mm-hmm. I just wonder, you mean, it, everything always seems to be more complicated when there's men and women together. So this is not a uh, comparison of, of uh, differences between men and women, but just the, the fact that intuitively together... Maybe might more more complicated in in your job in trying to manage a submarine or not. I don't know, but hey, uh, you know, so a guy would guys would we'd have personality conflicts, right? A guy would come to me and said, "Hey, I think so and so is a real jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like working with blah blah blah." And I would say, "Okay, yeah, you know, I, I would never try and change what they thought." I say, "Yeah, you're right. He is a jerk." <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we didn't really have that many jerks, but, but let's say I would just agree anyway. Yeah, you're right. He is a jerk, but uh, he's you know when when you're on watch and he's the watch leader, do what he says. But 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 but, but well, I don't care. So all I really focused on was um, the behavior, right? And I think a lot of you know that have sort of these rule these sins of communication, and most of the sins of communication that people have boil down to. Telling people what to do, telling people what to think, telling people why they did what they did, or you know anything like that. Well, we're having a, a really a great time, and it's been fascinating so far to to, to get your insights. We're going to take a our quick commercial break here. We'll be right back with uh, David Marquet from uh, the author of Turn the Ship Around. We're going to talk about his new uh, his kind of latest uh, book or guide that he's got coming out. We'll be back here in just a quick moment. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. 
Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. We're here again with uh, David Marquet, the author of uh, Turn the Ship Around, and he has written a new kind of uh, accompaniment guide. It's Turn Your Ship Around, and maybe you can kind of give us all a little bit of a uh, understanding of, of why you wrote that and, and how you how you see it working in organizations. Sure, uh, Turn the Ship Around. My original book is a fun story. It's very practical. It's what we did on the submarine, and there's a sort of countdown to the deployment date, so there's some tension going on, and, and it's, a, and it's a, a good story. But what Turn Your Ship Around is, it's basically the workbook that allows people to take the ideas and give them the workshop activities that I now do with companies around the world to train their brains, practice the behaviors, and implement intent-based leadership, turning everyone at every level in the company into a leader in their in their own companies. And there's also, uh, so there's some, some really you know, very practical exercises in there. You also have some accompaniment cards as well, right? Uh, kind of an exercise system? Yeah, so we have, we have activities, we have exercises. So, for example, one of the activities is about an hour and a half long activity we do based on the mas- movie Master and Commander. And so it tells you, hey, watch this part of the movie, and then here's some questions to discuss. And at the beginning, I mean, the movie, for those who haven't seen it, uh, Russell Crowe plays a a sea captain of a British warship back in 1805. It's an awesome movie. And everyone's like, yeah, I want to be like Russell Crowe. That's who I want to be as a leader. Uh, But by the time you're done with this activity, you're probably thinking, you know, that was great for them, but this might not be great for my company. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we have a bunch of things like that. But I'm really big on pr- activities that train your brain. In general, most people don't need a whole lot more training. What they just need is is practice and doing stuff. So uh, another thing we're big on, as you know, is giving up control. For, you know, what does it feel like to give control? So there's exercises like we call the coffee challenge. Go to co- go get some coffee, but let some let one of your coworkers order for you. Oh my goodness, how scary is that, right? So you're giving up control. Well, the same issues come at work. You know, if you can't do it with coffee, it's going to be pretty hard to do it at work. So it's things like that where we have activities and and they're pretty fun. Pretty fun to do usually. Yeah, you know, right when you said that, I don't know why, but I had this suddenly remembered this in this argument my wife and I were having for a long time, she was too too busy in the evenings to to want to make the kids lunches, and so I said I would start doing it. But she didn't want to give up the control <laughs> of making the lunches. And so finally someone said to her, well, what's the worst thing he can do? I mean, how bad can he screw up the kids' lunches? It's a sandwich and some, you know. And she yeah. finally gave it up, and, there, and, and that was kind of a, and somewhat a turning point for her to not, you know, she, the kids had gotten a little bit older now, so she didn't need to be kind of overly motherling them, you know, and 
that kind of stuff. So that's an interesting way to put it, just allowing someone to do a small task for you and, and to get that practice on how it feels and to start maybe letting go of these little things that might get you to a, to a better point with something big, right? Exact. I love that example. That's great. And so I'm not sure that we ever really get comfortable giving up control, but at least you know what it feels like you, and you feel the anxiety inside of you. And so when you're at work and you say, you know what, look, you're going to make the decision on whether we're going to include this, include this feature in the next software update. That's your decision. You're going to tell me what you intend to do. So maybe I have a last minute veto power, but this is your decision. Uh, and you, you will feel those. It feels exactly the same. So we need to understand those feelings and say, ah, this is this is normal. This is what it feels like. I am doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, instead of just learning a new skill all the time at some new training, you're you're kind of saying, yeah, it's we, we've had a lot of new things thrown at us. We've, we've learned a lot of things, but we we need to do is keep practicing these things. And I think practice is is huge, Chris. I you know I don't know if you want to do some more examples, but please, uh, please. Okay, so. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you a couple of examples of things I've dealt with recently. I'm uh, working with a company, manufacturing company down in Mexico, and because of the his, history in the company and cultural reasons, they're very reluctant to give bad news to the boss, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they're they're owned by a company in the United States. So we flew the operations man, manager down there. I mean, here's the scenario, right? Every day there's the VTC back with the states. The machine is down. Oh, machine will come back tomorrow. Machine will come back. You know, meantime you go out there on the, on the deck and the machine's in pieces. You know, it's not coming back anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, it'll come back tomorrow. So anyway, so we go down there. So we sit around. The, we go to the lunchroom with the the, the the production supervisors down in Mexico. We sit around a round table, and I, we just say, okay, give give bad. Here's the boss. He's sitting there, right? We flew him in. He said, give him bad news. Well, what do you mean? Just like tell him something bad that might happen. Make it up. And you could just see, even though it was all made up and we're sitting in the lunchroom, there was anxiety. Mm-hmm. And you could see as you went around the table, I was, I'd was i be looking at the next person or the two, two, two down. And I could see their faces starting getting all screwed up as they started worrying about you know this confrontation. And, oh, by the way, the boss needs to take it properly, right? If the boss blows up on the bad news... Then, then, oh, guess what? No one's going to bring you bad news. So we, we try and isolate the behaviors that we want and then find safe ways to, uh, to practice them. Another one of my favorites is pr- practicing dissenting or disagreeing with the group or the, me- or the boss. And we, we would practice that too. We do that sometimes with cards. I did this with a group in China. It was really fun. And I passed out these cards where if you got a red card, you had to disagree Man, so you could see some guys look very uncomfortable when they realized they were going to have to disagree with the, with the people. And that was anonymous. I think I remember in the book that was anonymous, right? So nobody knew that they had a red or black card. Well, if in this case they were all sitting around a table, so they knew people were going to disagree, mm-hmm. which um, which actually is an important part of it. But but what what makes it safe is that at the end you can turn over your card and say, "Look, I was disagreeing because I had a red card. I had to disagree." Right. That's what makes it safe. And but the thing that's really interesting is and, and there's some interesting psychological work on this, is that it only takes one person to disagree with the group to make it safe for everybody to disagree with, with the group. 
And so other people would start disagreeing, and that's what you want, right? Again, I think most of the conventional thinking is backwards. Conventional thinking is I want to drive for, toward a consensus. That's not what I wanted. I wanted to, to, to expose disparate opinions mm-hmm. and then have the, um, you know, eventually make a decision, but it was only after we exposed as many disparate uh, opinions as possible. It's a great exercise because we have many times in my own organization we've said, "Hey, we've got this idea. How many holes can we poke in this? And you know, will it, will this will this boat still float by the time we're done with this meeting? You know, we, we we try, but there's always that thought in the back of my mind: Is everyone really disagreeing or being the devil's advocate as much as as they could be? Because it maybe maybe it was still my idea walking in the door, and I may be asking for them to disagree, but that's different than them them actually disagreeing. So correct, yeah. And you're the and you're the boss. So you come in with a position of authority, and it's very difficult to disagree with the boss. And and, and telling people, oh, please, it's safe. You can disagree. That doesn't always get you there, as you know, Chris. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I love the card idea because now they're sort of you know the red card. They're now they're it, it fits in very well with the devil's advocate. Uh, Example, but they, they yeah, can, it's, it's like a game. It becomes yeah. a game, and then and then you don't need the card. It really, you, you know, you, two weeks, and you, you can get rid of the cards. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that, those are, and I'm glad you brought up the card example because that was one of the ones that kind of stuck with me when I was thumbing through the the guide over the last few days. Um, really, is a great collection of different exercises, and I think it's it's done in such a way that people maybe can go in there, can pick and choose what they think will work for their organization. Um, it's not something they have to necessarily read from front to back to, to understand. I mean, I'm sure you want them to do that, but if they, if they need help in a particular area, they can go in and kind of find a few things and, and get help there and then maybe come back to it when they need help in some other areas. Yeah, exactly right. It's, it, it, it follows the structure of the book, but it's, it's very much it very much just go find something that seems like it, w- it works for you. Uh, another one of my... Uh, did you have another question queued up, or do you want, want me to go on another one? Please go ahead. Okay, so yeah, another one of my favorites is this thing we call the ladder of leadership, and, and we also, and again, we have cards for these that you can get it off the website. Uh, but the the way it works is, um, well, I, I invented this with Stephen Covey when he came and rode the submarine, which was a huge. It's a thrilling time for me. You know, Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits, we got the word. He'd heard what we were doing, and he wanted to ride. And this was, I mean, he was huge. So he comes to the submarine, and he's really quiet for a while. And finally he says to me, you know, I figured out what's going on here. And this is, you know, it's about a year into it. And things were going pretty good. It's like, well, you know, for me it felt like chaos, right? You, we would just try things, and some things worked, and some things didn't work. Uh, and I said, well, well, please tell me, uh, Dr. Covey, because, you know, it kind of feels chaotic to me. And uh, he said, well, look, people, when people say, tell me what to do, you say, what do you think? When people say, this is what I think, you say, what do you recommend? When they say, what do you recommend? Then when they say, this is what I recommend, you say, what do you intend to do? When they say, I intend to do this, you say, why don't you just do it? And so basically, we kind of stitched together this ladder. Now, the funny part of the story was we, we came up with six of these really quickly. And he puts his head down. In his uh, forehead, down in his hand, and he's kind of rubbing his forehead, and I think he's seasick or something. I said, "Doctor Covey, are you okay?" And he says, and he looks up. He says, "No, no, I'm fine. It's just we need seven. I'm a seven guy." <laughs> so, so we ended up coming up with the seventh one. But now we have these cards. But I'm telling you, this Chris, this was the greatest leadership hack I ever heard because now I understood, like, 
empowerment. Now we had a scale and we had an activity. I could measure empowerment. It was visible and I, we could improve it, right? right? So I could say, look, you're here. You're at level two. I want you to get to level three in six months and level four six months after that. And so everyone sort of had these like personal goals where they wanted to move up the ladder. And because it was based on words that people said, it was visible. It was discreet and concrete. And it really, really was was helpful. And I, there's some guys down there in, in uh, OC that are using this to great effect in their in their companies. Well, and it's a uh, it, it, it's a really great thing that you come up with when you can you can make it something that can last long beyond whatever leader is in charge. That Chris, is. Let me just yeah. Let me just jump all over that. That is so true because. When you ask people, um, hey, you can do pretty good and everyone will know it's you or you can be awesome and no one will ever hear it, know who you were. What do you want? And people like they might say the second one, but in their in their hearts, they they really want it to be about them. And we all know the situation where the leader leaves and things kind of fall apart. And we go, oh, you know, Chris, geez, you know what happened? We you left. We miss you. You're so mm-hmm. awesome. You're a great leader. And I really part company again there because had you been a good leader, you would embed your genius in your people, in the practices and the people of the organization, not kind of selfishly kept it in your personality. So that to me is a sign of terrible leadership. It's a sign of good accomplishment, maybe good achievement, but terrible leadership. So especially in in talent development, right? right? Especially in talent development. You can, you see this like in uh, athletics and at college sports, you'll have coaches that leave a program and selling that program has just gone to hell in a handbasket. And then you see other coaches where their assistants go on to either take over for them or to go on to other programs and they make those programs great. And, and I've always thought those are some of the better leaders that they obviously had something that their assistants that the other people in the organization could take somewhere and do something with. Exactly, because what they're doing is they're scaling. All these tech guys talk about scale. Well, you're scaling the most valuable thing you have, which is your judgment and your ability to make decisions. Wouldn't you like to scale that? Because when you scale that, you're not going to be stoppable. And this is a bit more concrete, what you're suggesting and how you're kind of asking people to approach this. This is not some flowery idea that you know an HR person or CEO or whoever is going to have to just figure out on their own or, or do that you have these very concrete things that they can begin to do in practice. Yeah. It may mold into something that's really specific to them, but at least the foundation and the exercises they can jump in and start using right away. And that's really, that's really powerful. I think. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you know, for me, the word was, I intend to maybe in your company, it's, well, I plan to, or something like that. But, uh, you know, so, so morph it to the, to, to what fits you best, but the idea is that uh, the phrase I use is we act our way to new thinking, not think our way to new action. This is why most of your all's change management programs are doomed. Uh, we're going to try and convince people to be a different way, and then they're going to somehow act magically a different way. That's not how brains work. What we want to do is, let's say you want people to be more empathetic, collaborative, create whatever it is. Find some little thing and practice it, and then you become more empathetic. I was working with a company in New York where they said, you know, can you train our people to be more, have more empathy? 
And I said, yeah, I think I can. And so we had an activity. In New York, you know, the, the subway turnstiles go both ways. So the train arrives and everyone's rushing off the train. But everyone's rushing on. You know, the people are trying to catch that last train. So, they're, so there's these collisions at the turnstiles all the time. It actually works better than you would think. But I said, okay, so look, empathy is putting, your position, putting yourself in the position of the other person and trying to feel what they feel. So, so what I want people in your company to do is just practice when they get to these turnstiles, yield to the other person. Just yield to the other person. And it's a physical thing. It's, it's you know, really doesn't delay anybody. Right. And then they, they learn, they train, they rewire their brains, and they become empathetic. It sounds really simple, but it's really powerful. So one of the other things that uh, I had people kind of either ask about or mention was, uh, some of them had actually listened to the book, and that was the way I interacted with the book was, uh, hearing you you read it, what, was there uh, maybe a, a conversation there, or any any particular reason why you chose to actually narrate the book? <laughs> um, yeah, so it's my story, right? And I think that's why it works. I did want, I did not want to read the book. It was uncomfortable for me, and i I listened to I listened to. Uh, you know, they, they give you these voices to, to choose when you go to do the Audible book. And so I listened to 10 voices. I didn't really like any of them. I listened to 10 more. I didn't really like any of them. I, 10 more. And, and finally they said, well, why don't you read it? I said, well, I'm, you know, I don't know. And so I can't do that. Anyway, so I went to the studio. Now, it's kind of fun because I did it down here in Florida. And Stephen King uh, lives nearby. He lives in a different neighborhood than me, by the way. But <laughs> anyway, he lives over on the ocean, and uh, and so it turns out that this this studio, so this chair that I was sitting in reading my book is where Stephen King uh, has been doing all his reading of his stories. And for some reason, you know, I don't want to compare myself to Stephen King, but like sitting there, I was like, yeah, Stephen King was sitting here. It it, it made it more fun. Yeah. And 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 I think because it was my story, I kind of just got into it. But it's hard to. <laughs> It is harder than you think. Oh, I can imagine because one little mumble and bumble or you know thing, yeah. and you got to go back and yeah. Uh, but I can tell you, I, I so many people ask me, just please make him say Santa Fe. So Santa Fe. The, the way you say that, I think, really captured people in some way. I don't know, subconsciously or not. I remember thinking it, you know, when I was listening. But um, it was it was one of the very few books that business books that I ever you know read or listened to where I kept wanting to go back and i kept sneaking off in the house to go and listen a little bit more um because i was so curious about the story who was going to happen to so and so or where you know what what was that you guys were going to come up with next and it doesn't normally happen I mean, there are business books that are great but you know i can let them sit on my dresser for three months and then go back to them and pick up the rest and you know they don't have that level of engagement i think it's the story and for me listening to it the way that you read it i think was was fantastic so Thanks. yeah uh you know we're, we're getting close here to the end but i wanted to make sure we asked you um who who maybe is kind of impacting you now that maybe you might suggest people look at or you know is there a book they might read or anybody out there from a thought leadership standpoint um, who maybe uh, you're kind of paying attention to right now? Yeah, well, first off, uh, I love Simon. Uh, I, full disclosure, I'm a pretty good friend with Simon Sinek. His Start With Why is, yeah. is really important. And and his new book, 
Start with why is selling better than his new book, but I, I think his new book is actually um, more important in some ways. In his new, in his new book, Leaders Eat Last, he, ba- he basically says, look, leaders, the, the job of the leader is to create a circle of safety and to control who comes into that circle and to make it feel safe inside the circle. And I think this is so right. And, and so many people... Because of, I don't know why, but they just feel like, you know, I need to sort of have provoke my people to work. Mm-hmm. And in the right environment, that's the, you do not. In the right environment, you're, you're ordering your people to go home. You're, you, you have to tell your people to stop working. Because in the right environment, they, they have this burning sense of purpose. They have a tremendous amount of autonomy, and they're not worried about failing. They're not worried that they're they're not competing with the guy next to them. And I think a lot of these things we have, you know, some of these things that were introduced, you know, rack and stack and all this stuff. It just it's terrible because you can't do your best work when you're worried. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. If you're worried about your job, you're worried about your performance, or about the guy next to you, whatever it may be, yeah, it, it occupies a part of your energy and part of your your, your yeah. thought process that is just you know could be easily used for creativity and problem solving and engagement or whatever it may be. Yeah, I mean Simon's new book I read. I I I, I have told people to stick to stick with. It. I think the beginning for me was that he had a mil- fighter jet example, and it was. For lack of a better word, I don't want to say cliche, but it was. I've had a lot of books kind of start that way, but it, that book just finished so strong. It was it was yeah. really really good, and I, I I highly suggested it to everyone. In fact, I do a couple um, HR book clubs, and that's kind of on our list this year to make sure we we, we read and tackle and discuss because um, it's it's a really he has some really good things in there. Yeah, let me um, let me go back to something that I didn't really answer earlier. But first, another guy, just real quick. George Kohlreiser, uh, FBI mm-hmm. hostage negotiator, trains police forces. His his recent book's called Dare to Care, and it's uh, it's really good. I won't tell you more about it, but I recommend that to the readers. And let me just go back to the thing you said about hey, this military. You know, they show some hey, you're in combat and bullets are flying, and you know it works. It, the problem is. 90% of what you see in the movies when you watch something about the military is in combat. But 99.999% of what happens in the military is just like what's happening in your office building. Yeah. It's people thinking, having meetings, planning. And you need to optimize your organization for what happens 99.999% of the time, not the point zero zero one. Yeah. And oh, by the way, when you make that other stuff work right, the point zero zero one will take care of itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you do the right preparation and you, you train your people. I mean, that's one thing the military is, I think I've known for. And I, I guess when I think of the military, and this may, be, this may not be the right uh, mindset, but I always kind of romantically envision the kind of the, the World War II things that are, that are portrayed in movies and in books and in the incredible preparation and, and things that they did for that war is kind of how I think someone who's not in the military maybe would envision things working. There's that preparation. There's that incredible work ethic. There's that intelligence going on um, and the innovation, too. Um, yeah, I mean, th- that was obviously an amazing s- story and part of history. It, but, you know, for me, a guy like Eisenhower is really – he is like the leader, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't land on D-Day. He, right. didn't, he was on the beaches, but 
you know, he created sort of this environment where when the guys landed, those guys had to make decisions, right? Mm-hmm. American GIs, you know, 21-year-old kids were making decisions and, you know, how to deal with German pillboxes and machine guns. That's why we won. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they had the that enough uh, training and background and yeah, whatever it was. But you're right. Yeah, they had to go in there and make those decisions. They didn't have the general calling them on the phone to tell them how to take care of that. They had to come up with those solutions. And that's, I guess they probably knew they'd have some sense of, auto- some bit of autonomy there. Uh, to do that, and that that really correlates directly in everything we, we've been talking about today, and what organizations I think are are desperately missing, especially those that are struggling and asking why their people aren't uh, performing the way they want, or their organizations aren't growing the way they want. You know, there's some level of mastery that training, some level of purpose that's maybe missing, and and they really need to to, to focus on that. So, uh, certainly, I think people will know where to find you if, if they're interested. But uh, last question I wanted to ask you was, what do you think today, based on what you, you've talked about, were kind of the, how, how would you summarize as kind of the best things that we talked about today that people should really have taken away from this conversation? First question, do you want your people to think or do? If you want them to think, you got to give them control. Second question, if you're going to give control, how do you give control without having chaos those are the only two questions that matter right well that's fantastic advice uh if you haven't read the book i highly suggest it if you have read the book uh and you liked it at all definitely check out the workbook which is coming out is it out now or is it going to be released here this month i can't yeah yeah uh january 27th you can order it it's uh you can order it now you can order it now okay yeah so i i have uh was privileged enough to get an advanced copy it looks fantastic i highly suggest all of our uh Listeners, check it out, and we will certainly be uh, promoting it here. So, uh, David, thank you so much for being on the show. It is a real pleasure, and uh, we look forward to what else you have to, to bring our way. Great, great, and I hope to get out to OC. Absolutely. Early in the new year. Happy New Year, everybody. Okay. Thank you, and uh, tune in next week, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, where we'll talk with Peter Fisher, the Vice President of Field HR for Ventura Foods, and J.D. Sanders, HR Consultant and Vice President of HR for uh, Goldspan. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Town Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2. 